Hey there, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast Bound in Pale Leather, a podcast about the chronicles of the Kenserath. I'm Catherine. And I'm Gabe. All gates and hands be open to you. In this episode, we're indulging ourselves to talk freely about these books without worrying about cutting out any spoilers, which is totally different from any other episode in this podcast. So, dun-dun-dun! If you're reading these books for the first time, be forewarned. There will be spoilers in this episode, so use your judgment. We usually try very hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, we really do. And Gabe is total champ. So, but do use your judgment on whether or not you want to listen to this episode right now or if you want to wait. Other than the warning for spoilers, our trigger warning for this episode are manifold and probably too numerous to mention because... Uh, the short list is, we're going to be talking about Bane, Ash, and the Randir, and so take care of yourselves. Yeah, also we can't, normally we try hard to give like an actual list of trigger warnings because we have just read the chapter that we're discussing. We're just going to kind of talk yep. this time, so we'll see how that goes. Yes, so... If you are familiar with this podcast, you know what the trigger warnings are like. So just take care of yourselves. Yeah, trigger warning for Bane, trigger warning for Kaneron's bullshit, trigger warning for Randir's bullshit if you know Randir. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, Gabe, would you hit us up with the summary? I would be delighted to. Our summary <laughs> is more of sort of a bulleted list of things we're hoping to get to because we actually sat down and did planning this time. It was thrilling. <laughs> Such an experience. So we're hoping to talk about some things that came up in the first two books, but we weren't able to talk about them either at all in some cases or to the extent we wanted to in others because they were just too spoiler heavy to get into even a little. So we're going to be talking about Bane, Ash, Titastagon, Kindry, the Randir, and Graken. We're just going to kind of go as the spirit moves us through those subjects. Yep. And we'll get to whatever we get to, and we won't get to whatever we don't get to. And we're going to try and keep this episode a pretty reasonable length. Yep. I want to give a shout out to everyone who has sent us their ideas and their notes. Yes. Talking to you, Jonathan, you totally rock. Don't worry if something that's close to your heart was not in that list. We're probably going to hit it because... Yeah, yeah, if you sent in like a broad theme about the entire series, like mom's first suggestion for something she wanted to talk about was themes of faith and identity in feminism through the series. And I was like, cool, you can write a dissertation. <laughs> We're going to not do that because I'm not editing that episode. It will be 40 hours long. <laughs> As so, a, so I'm, you know, if it if you sent in a broad scope statement about how you want to talk about like, I don't know, we're just starting Seeker's Mask, which is in the women's world. So we're definitely going to talk a lot in the next book about feminism in the Kenserath and like femininity in the Kenserath because I talk incessantly about gender all the time. We're going to get to it. Yep. We're not going to get to it today because <laughs> it would take the whole episode. 
<laughs> but the other thing to bear in mind is that because Gabe and I know ourselves and we know each other well enough to know that if we did not have a specific limit, this would be a seven hour episode. This baby's coming in under two hours if it kills everyone involved. Absolutely. And so I actually have a timer. So, so as a result, I think we, this would be a great opportunity to dive into our first point. Oh, y'all knew we were going to be here. We're talking about Bane. Yes, we're talking about Bane. We are so talking about Bane. Please. Y'all knew we were going to be here. Please proceed. It's time to talk about Bane. God, I'm excited. I like, I love Bane so much. I recently watched all of the show The Untamed on Netflix, which I recommend absolutely sight unseen. If you enjoy the Kenserath, you should watch Untamed have a good time. But it has a specific character and I watched every scene he was in and I was like, God, I want someone to talk to me about Bane <laughs> right now, every moment he's on screen. So we're talking about Bane because mom is gonna indulge me. Uh, and not only that, but the very first point that you came up with was so amazing. I want you to talk about that point. So one of the things that I'm really obsessed with about Bane is that a big part of the reason that he's a tragedy, a big part of the reason that he is a sad character rather than being like, okay, don't get me wrong. He is um, the worst. <laughs> he's the worst. And I know that. And I get that. And like, there's, there's a lot more to be said here. But he's also really kind of a tragedy because he, he wants so much and ends up with so little. Yeah. But the thing that I've always been most riveted by in terms of Bane, beyond like just the purity of his monstrousness, the thing I've always been most fascinated by is the way that he is a tragedy because the thing he wants most in the world is what Torison throws away every day. Because one of the big themes in the book with Jaime and Tori's relationship is that Tori... For a lot of reasons, some of them more legitimate than others. Mm -hmm. Some of Tori's reasons for having issues with Jame and their relationship are really based in severe trauma and in a misguided desire to protect her. <laughs> whereas a lot, whereas some of the other issues are just purely based in the fact that he lives in a very sexist society mm -hmm. and he's been expected to conform rigorously to highborn standards. Yeah. So he knows nothing about highborn women. <laughs> Like I think it's it, I think it's implied at one point that he's he's literally met less than a dozen. Yeah, well, yeah, well excluding he... Jame and his mother, he's met less than a dozen highborn women. Mm -hmm. Kendar, a different story. Kendar will do fucking whatever. Like gender norms have never occurred to a Kendar, as far yeah. as I can tell. But so the thing about Tori and Jame's relationship that really is so it's so deeply ingrained in every scene is that Tori has this innate natural connection with Jame that's so effortless on both their parts. And it's that psychic link I've talked about before. It's that sharing of headspace in a really literal sense. Mm -hmm. And it's that Tori absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is the most important person in the world to Jame. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't sacrifice the other people in her life for him without a thought. But I think that there's a legitimate case to be made that if someone put her on the spot and she really had to think about it, Tori would probably win that coin toss. Yep. Yes. And like all Bane wants, all Bane craves all the way through his relationship with Jame, which is 
only a year. He's older than Jamin Tory, so he's at least 32 mm-hmm. but at the time of his death. Mm-hmm. Because Ishtir leaves the Haunted Lands a couple years before Jamin Tory are born. Yep. Uh, or might be even closer than that. But he's at least a year older than Jamin Tory, which means he has to be at least 30 when he dies. But that year he spends with Jame is like the focal point of his life in a really, really literal way because it's everything he's ever conflicted about. It's everything he's ever struggled against. It's everything he's ever craved in one person. And all he wants, all he wants from Jame is to be the most important person in her life. Yes. And I think it's, it's tragic on a very real level that he's he craves that and he does so much and he tries to bloodbind her to him mm-hmm. like when he can't get it legitimately he tries by hook or by crook yeah. like and tori has that yeah he's the most important person to james he has that bond he has that link and he cringes away from it every time they talk and he runs from her so desperately through the whole series and i just like on a meta level i think bane is a fascinating tragedy of in that sense yes and in uh, along those lines one of the things that i wrote down when i was reviewing all of your notes was that with bane there is this unrequited devotion that is dovetailed with this almost constitutional loneliness that you had mentioned because he so much wants that connection with jame yeah and i mean like he's very much like jame in that he craves the knowledge of what it is to be Kensier. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something that Torison has yeah. innately, like without difficulty. And it it burns Bane to not have that. And I think to a certain extent, it is a mercy that he's as dead as he is. Well, before he is put in a position to know that Torison exists, because I think it would, I think the casualty rate of him having that knowledge would have been high. Well, and that's, that I think is really, really interesting because even though Bane really was very present in Godstock, in Seeker's Mask, he is imbued in almost every page where Jame happens to be there, especially once she leaves the women's world. And oh my God, she's already thinking about Bane before she leaves. Yeah, he's, um... He shows up early in that book, doesn't he? Shows he shows up early, like on page 30. He's like, suddenly Jane is like calling out to him. And he's present. And he is present with her. It seems he's present with her all along the river road. With that scene with the Bashti assassin where Bane yeah. gets the information out of the assassin in the... Oh, as only Bane can. God, <laughs> what's the line? Keep him, keep him from closing his eyes. Yes. And, and, and at that point, it's almost as if Jame truly understands Bane. Because I've always thought that Jame kind of splits the difference between Tori and Bane. Bane is the, is the embodiment of who she could be if she chooses to fall. And, uh, and Tori is what keeps her from falling. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's fascinating because... Bane is such an interesting... I think it's always so interesting in the Kenserath to think about characters in terms of who they want to be. Ooh, nice. 
Because Bane wants to be tor- wants to be Torison. Uh-huh. In like a really visceral way. <laughs> and he wants Jane to be him. Mm-hmm. And he wants them to have the bond that she has with Tori. Yes. And I think that it's fascinating because a big part of that is that Bane should be a potential nemesis, but he's not because he's not pure-blooded highborn. Ooh, nice. And so to some extent, he has a certain level of understanding. He, he His grasp of the like esoteric forces that kind of run the Kenserath's existence is pretty good for someone who's also Bane. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I'm right. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I'm right. But his, like, craving to be Torison and to be Jame and for them to be him is also, I think, so interesting in correlation with the fact that his Shanir abilities are a little more limited, mm-hmm. obviously, because he's he's not pure-blooded, highborn. But his suite of Shanir abilities is pretty similar to James. Yeah. He's a bloodbinder. He has that ability to, like, enchant Mm -hmm. that she has. We don't ever get a confirmation on whether or not he's a berserker, but his killing style is powerfully reminiscent of James' killing style when she is truly enraged. I'm specifically thinking of her fight with Vant. Oh! First your coat, and then your shirt, and now I think your skin. Yes! Where, and that's what's interesting. I'm so glad that you brought that up because Torison's reaction and his then fallout decisions that are related to what he thinks happened. Oh, that's going to be a fun book to talk about Tori's life choices in. Is in a way so similar to James' initial response to Bane and also to herself, to her Shanir qualities. It's this... Yeah. And that, I think, is so fascinating that we are able to still have some compassion for this stupid fuckhead that is Torison who makes so many bad decisions, but we oh, understand so why dumb. he makes all of those decisions because of the experience that we've had with James and with Bane. I'm... I love that. Yeah. So I don't know. I just I I think a lot about I think a lot about the Kenserath and who who the characters wish they were. Yeah. Especially because it means that the characters who are themselves mm-hmm. and whether because they're genuinely content or because they've given up on wishing to be something else are few and far between. I can think of one person who does seem to be truly content as they are, and that's Ash. You tell. Ash, yeah. I, I can think of more Kendar than Highborn. Well, yes. Obviously. But, yes. like, among the Highborn, that, and among the part-blooded Highborn, like, Graken, Bane, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shade. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that craving to be, like, picking a person and wanting to be that, off the cuff, I can only think of maybe one or two Highborn who are not acting out of that impulse. Well, what's interesting is that the first, there were two people that came to mind when you mentioned that, and they are, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Brenweir and Erelyn. I think, here's my thing. Brenweir and Erelyn are a beautiful love story. 
complicated by the fact that there is nothing in the world that Brenware wants more than to be Aralyn. I don't think, I never thought that. I don't think Hear me out though. Because the reason that I think that is because all of the moments we see from Brenware's point of view are so, she's so entranced by the gentleness of Aralyn. She's so entranced by the fact that Aralyn couldn't hurt someone. And that her, like, contribution to the history of the North is saving Thierry. And I think that, like, this is not to, to discredit Brenweir as a person or as a lover. Like, mm-hmm. I think that I, I think that their relationship is really lovely and really beautiful. And it as far as the sister-friends dynamic goes, mm-hmm. I think the only relationship that I find to stand up against it in terms of just, like, aching beauty mm-hmm. is uh, Adirena and Kinsey. Yeah. But even so, so much of what Brenweir is enthralled by with Aralyn, because it really is, like, it's almost an enchantment. It's that North glamour that we hear about again and again. And again, that's not to say it's not genuine love, but, like, this enthrallment she has with Aralyn is so crafted around the parts of Aralyn that reflect the things Brenweir hates the lack of in herself. And see, I hear what you're saying, and I am going to, I'm going to give a caveat. Valid. (laughs) And this, I think, is really interesting, because I have always seen James' relationship with Aralyn, and then James watching Brenweir's relationship with Aralyn as a way of James understanding her relationship with Bane. Because by the time that Ash guides James and Bane down to the basement cellar where Bane will be kept Mm -hmm, safe mm -hmm. and will guard the knife and the book. Safe, quote unquote. I think at that point, James has this conscious understanding and this recognition that she and Bane are directly connected. And one way or another, she's responsible for Mm -hmm. the love that he bears for her, the connection that he bears for her. But I've always thought of Brenweir and Aralyn not as much as, I mean, certainly Brenweir sees Aralyn as her keel. But I also think that it is a genuine devotion and a genuine love. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, the 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 thing I want to mention in talking about Brenweir's uh, affection for Aralyn in that context is, first of all, Aralyn has been dead for the majority of Brenweir's life. Yes. So... In a pretty literal sense, Brenweir is in love with a, like, a religious icon, almost as much as she's in love with a person at this juncture, because she isn't reunited with Aralyn's spirit until Jane gives her the death banner. And so she's, she's, it's natural for the memory of a person to focus so much on their, their qualities that you think of as, like, their best traits. Mm -hmm. But two... Like, I, I want to be clear, this this really isn't me denigrating Brenware's affection for Aralyn in any way, because, like, a big part of the reason you fall in love with someone is usually because, like, you see something in them that reflects something you feel like you lack. That's true. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like, um, what's a good example. My girlfriend is great with people. She's really diplomatic. Like, she has a natural gift for understanding how social situations work and how to work them to her benefit. And I find it completely incredible to watch and I have no fucking clue how to replicate it. And, you know, 
I think to some extent, like, with Brenweir, it's much more intense because Brenweir, more so than anything else, just hates being herself. But, like, that that love of another person because they have something you feel like you, you lack, like, it's not innately negative. But I, I do think to some extent, like, Brenweir saw a lot of what she wished she could be in Erolyn and also fell in love with her. And that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I will speak to having a certain amount of understanding of Brenweir because, you know, in the same way that I've read that Brenweir feels more grounded when she's with Erolyn, which is part of why her separation from Erolyn's death banner was so painful for her, that mm-hmm. in the same way I, for a long time, really relied on your dad to be that grounding force. Yeah. And now I'm even more interested to read through the books in order to see this from this perspective. Yeah. And yeah, anyway, I just, I think it's really interesting to talk about Bane in terms of his desire to be someone else. Mm -hmm. Because like, A, I think that always tells you a lot about a character is like, who do they want to be? Not in the sense of like, what is their goal for themselves? But in the literal sense of like, if they could take someone's life, if they could replace someone, who would it be and why? Yeah. So- I have a question for you. Hit me. My question kind of leads us into talking about Ash, and that is this. Ash is a person who has an intimate understanding of what pertains to the dead. And so I'm really intrigued about what your thoughts are with regards to Ash's implacability in the face of the unknown and how she's so willing to really provide Jame a lot of help especially when it comes to Bane. I think there is, more than anything else, kind of a spirit of experimentation about it. I think so! Like, because specifically the thing I'm thinking about is, on the one hand, yeah, she's easily the most helpful person Jane finds (laughs) when it comes to dealing with Bane. So true. Which, I'm not gonna say that's a high bar, but... (laughs) But it actually kind of is. Undeniable. It kind of, it sort of is. Is it? Is it and here's 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 the here's the reason <laughs> who why. else is objectively helpful in dealing with Bane is my question. Okay, uh, I the I think that Mark is not a viable answer. Mark is not a viable answer, but I think that the only way that we can look at that is that we can see what the word helpful means. Because That's really, valid. I mean, in order to be helpful when you're dealing with Bane, is go away, don't be near him. He's basically the devil on legs, but. Ash in the spirit You're of exper- valid. <laughs> Ash in the spirit of experimentation who is like doing these experiments because she wants to see if Jame is going to become a nemesis or if she's going to be flipped into the into the Tyridon. She kind of sees Bane as this experiment because he's bloodbound to Jane. He cannot yeah. leave her. And so because he's bloodbound to Jane, he makes the perfect petri dish for ash that's why i think that she is singularly helpful but in the same way that a scientist is helpful when trying to figure out how to cure a disease by experimenting on people yeah there's a definite vibe with ash how do i want to put this ash is trying to find out if she can cure the cancer of syphilis in this case <laughs> widespread corruption with malaria in this case james yes that works by the way Mm -hmm. it has about a 15 percent mortality rate straight out the gate really 
It does. And that is actually, I did not, A, I did not know that, and B, or sorry, it's the other way around. You can treat uh, malaria with syphilis. You can treat malaria with syphilis and 15% of the people are likely to die. Oh, 15, let me be clear. 15% of those people are likely to die from, like, from the treatment during the treatment time period. Oh my god. Your odds of dying from later complications of having been intentionally infected with syphilis and then having it treated are higher. Oh my god. But- for a while there, we did that. And so Jame is, as far as ashes of the opinion that Jame could cure the Kenserath. That's true. Of That's true. A, of fairly literally a parasitic infection. Yep. Both parasitic in the sense of perimal darkling literally functions as a parasite, and parasitic in the sense of the highborn have gotten a little dire. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but a fair number. And so, you know, since... Ash is Kendar, and she can't just straight up say, I think we need a guillotine. (laughs) She's opting for the next best option. But she's going at that with this attitude of like, well, I need to know if she's the real deal. Not just a nemesis, but the nemesis. Because the thing that distinguishes, the things that distinguish a nemesis from the nemesis are one, the rest of the Tyraiden, yep. which are vitally important in Ash's plan. Because if it's just Jame, then she's not going to cure fucking anything. They're just going to be part of the 15%. Yep. And Two, the other thing is that the nemesis can only be killed by a Kenseer. A nemesis, as far as I can tell, can be bumped off by other sources. Yeah. So Ash keeps trying to get Jane killed <laughs> with this attitude of like, well, either it will work and I will have helpfully removed a dangerous force from my people, mm-hmm. or it won't work in which case the hour is at hand, the time is nigh, the apocalypse is here, and we're going to fix our fucking culture. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that the reason she's helpful with Bane is because she's just like, well, if you're a nemesis and I successfully kill you, mm-hmm. he's imprisoned in a dark hole with two objects of power, which are then off the board and not part of the problem yep, anymore. Yep. If you're the nemesis, hey, a soul, ca- a, like a soul riding demon that can rip people to shreds and will do anything you tell it to, A, because he's bloodbound, and B, because his devotion to you is scary. <laughs> That's a very valuable implement. Very. You know who she reminds me in this? She reminds me of Chef Sharp Tongue. I bet they're tight. Specifically at the point in Tentir when Ardith and Torison are facing off because Ardith is going off the deep end and their power is actually warping the pattern yeah. of the wood and Jame is trying to get Sheth Sharp Tongue to actually intervene. And Sheth Sharp Tongue is saying, no, I will not, because if this High Lord is going to break, he needs to break now rather yeah. than two years from now. And not just now, but here where we can control it exactly. and limit the damage. The level of that yeah. pragmatism is unbelievable. All right. The only other thing I really wanted to say about Ash, I think that what we just discussed really covers her devotion to the concept of some things needing to be broken. Yes. Her attitude is she has her eye on the prize. Yep. And like, if you are in her way, that's a you problem, not a her problem. And she's not going to make it a her problem. So just get out of her way. And it's not like she's going to die. She's yeah, got she's time. Like, she's like, well, you know, <laughs> like if it's not going to be the end of the world if she dies. Yes. It might be if she lives. So we're just going to we're just going to do this with kind of a um, pragmatic touch. But the other thing I wanted to mention about Ash is you and I talked about this briefly, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it more through the rest of the books. But I do love how being dead 
and therefore not really having a dog in this fight makes her sort of the perfect outside observer. Oh, yeah. Like, the reason she's able to be that pragmatic is because she's like, hey, what's the worst that could happen? The world ends and I die? (laughs) Yeah. Ooh, did that already. And like, you know, oh, what's the worst that could happen? Our culture could fall apart. I'm a singer. I know exactly how fucked up our culture is. Yeah. Like, Ash is intimately aware about how fucked up the division between law and custom has become. Mm-hmm. Especially because she's a singer in a house that just appointed a female lord. Yeah. So. Well, and I had referred to her as the Greek chorus because she does yeah. have that objective perspective. Objective perspective? Objective perspective. Alrighty then. Where do you want to go from here? Well, I was kind of wondering, do you want to, this was the last thing on our list because our list has no system. Do you want to talk a little bit about Graken? Because we were just talking about Bane and Ash. And like, as outsiders go, I think Graken is like really the third part of that sort of, they're, they're not unified by anything in narrative except by being outside observers. I so want to talk about Graykin because uh, you had made a wonderful note about Graykin and power. And I was thinking about Graykin and power in terms of this. Graykin seeks power because for him, power is the opposite of helplessness. And he has yep. been nothing but helpless. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that that glamour comes up and it doesn't have anything to do with the Kenserath. It simply has to do with the drive of, I don't ever want to be hurt again. I don't ever want to be helpless again. That's why the heirloom of Gresham possesses him so easily and so completely. Yeah, that, um, I don't like that. Yeah, that's pretty awful. Everything that has to do with Gresham is pretty bad, actually. It's really awful. It's really, really bad. Just skin-crawlingly, skin-crawlingly unpleasant. Yeah. Like, I love a good villain, but mm, don't, don't care for that one, actually. And I think- it's worth it to put a pin in that particular horrible thing because we'll be able to come back to it with, with the Candier and the Randon. No, with the Caneron yep. and with the Randier. But the reason that I think that Greykin is so powerful is because James is a person who grew up being helpless. Torison is a person who grew up being helpless. Greykin grew up being helpless and all of these people have taken completely different trajectories. I mean, yeah. if you have Kindry, Jame, Torison, Graykin, Brenweir even, and how helpless each one of those people are, you have this beautiful exploration of this experience of recovery from a toxic environment. And Graykin really represents that longing for power to ensure that they're never helpless. And I can think of some people that we happen to know who kind of embody that. We can see it out in the news where the desire to never be helpless and that's what allows them to become possessed. Yeah, and it's that that mentality of I've been hurt, so I'm going to do the hurting. Exactly, exactly. And like, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot to say about Graykin and power and his his investment in it and his investment in being seen as powerful mm-hmm. 
even though he, he he's fascinating because he suffers from kind of a disconnect of method versus desired outcome. Yeah, I because like Because he wants to be seen as powerful, but also he thinks of himself so exclusively as a sneak, yeah. as a spy. And the point of a spy is that no one knows they're there. And he can't stop telling people how important he is because he's constantly denigrating himself. And yeah, I cannot wait to talk about Greykin, especially once we get into the Soulscape, because I oh, the Soulscape absolutely is so... love it. And actually, I have a long note about this with regards to your note. I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you about Greykin no, totally and Kindry and repeating cycles versus breaking cycles. Yeah, and Greykin thinks he's breaking the cycle of helplessness, but he's repeating Kainoran's cycles of abuse. Yeah, he's really perpetuating the toxic behavior that was perpetuated against him down the line because, like, Lyra hurting Graykin isn't because Lyra is an innately malicious person. It's because she was 14 and didn't know any better. Yeah. And, you know, Kainoran's father's 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 father, I'm sure, was also a horrible person. And, like, yeah. But here's... Sorry, carry on. Part of what's interesting about that, because Jame is a person who is who is directly involved in Graykin's cycle itself. And it's it's how she deals with her trauma that informs how Graykin actually proceeds through his recovery. On the other side, we have Jame and Kindry. Kindry is afraid that he is repeating the cycles, but he's actually breaking the cycles through his relationships with Jame and with Kindry's interactions with Torison, even when Torison is not actively interacting with I, Yeah, I described Kindry and Torison's relationship as Kindry just showing up every like six months to like knock on the door and be like, you prepared to have a civil conversation with me yet? No, okay, I'll be back in six months. Exactly. And <laughs> but Kindry is willing to make these extensions. And it's interesting because remember that point when where Jame discovers the the contract for Kindry? Yes. That's late. That is really late. That's I'm late in the game. I think so that's late in, in the game. God, it's in that's in like Honor's Paradox. Yeah. It's so late. I looked it up. I went through all of that's the books. Not actually yeah, I mean, I guess that's just after the halfway point. God, I always think that happens like Seeker's Mask. Yeah. I always think of that as like, you know, obviously Kindry's legitimate. Obviously Kindry's not actually a bastard. But it, it's important to remember that like, A, the entire rest of the Kenserath still believes that Kindry is the bastard disgrace of the North House. Yes. And B, it's important to remember that Kindry's really not used to thinking of himself as a legitimate child of the North. Yes. And he has the tremendous misfortune of ha being told he, like, congratulations, you're legitimate. Your legitimate father is the master. Sorry, you might want to go back to being a bastard. I misspoke. I think that he, I think that he learns that he's legitimate in Bounden Blood, but it isn't until Honor's Paradox when he's kidnapped by the Randir again. And at that point, when he's taken by the Randir again, he's able to maintain his sense of self and to watch yeah. that trajectory where Graken loses oh, so himself so completely provides this really stark comparison between these two paths of recovery. Yeah, there. I mean, like, I'm done. And this begs an interesting question, because, of course, Kindry is preservation. Yes. And, of course, since he's preservation, he is 
we know where he's gonna come down, A, in pretty much any conflict, and B, in the final fight. Like, we know where he's gonna land when it comes to, like, standing against Perimal Darkling. Yeah. But, like, with Graykin, he's interesting because we we don't have that concrete an idea. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be easy to say, well, he's bound to Jaime, and, like, for all the complications in their relationship, of which there are many, it would be easy to say, like, he's bound to Jaime, so of course he's gonna side with her, and she's you know, Rajanareth, she's destruction, she's one of the Tyrannians, so he's gonna side with the Kenserath. If I was gonna point to a character who I thought was the best candidate for corruption by the master, it would be Graykin without a without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's so desperate for that power. He's so desperate. What's the line? Uh wealth and power had he and knowledge deeper than the sea of stars, but he feared death. Yes. Yes. And like, yeah, if I was going to pick someone just stone cold, like, hey, based on everyone's character archetype, who do you think the best candidate for walking into the shadows, eyes wide open and not coming out again? I would say Graken. Yeah. And so I think that the fact that Graken is so intimately and soulfully connected to James through her soulscape and James' own difficulty in parsing that line between darkness and awareness, ignorance and innocence, I think that I'm really fascinated to see how he plays out. Same, same. I'm really excited to talk more about him um, as the books continue because, like, the other thing is, like, as the books continue, I've grown progressively less sympathetic toward Greg. <laughs> yeah, well. Which, it, hey, that's gonna sound brutal in like Uh, you know half a book yeah that's gonna yeah (laughs) i really have like lost my not my compassion for him like obviously i still want him to be okay but like not i'm not sympathetic toward him in the same way that i was the first time i read these books you know yeah he's beautifully crafted because he is imminently sympathetic and unbelievably annoying All at the same time. He's so aggravating. Like, I don't... He's so frustrating. I... I, He he doesn't deserve to be treated the way Jame treats him. Yes. But holy shit, he's annoying. Yes. And not in the sense of, like, an annoying younger brother, but in the sense of, like, I would feel kind of stalked with the way he behaves around Jame. Yes. Yes. Like, you know, like in the in the legal sense, <laughs> I would feel kind of stalked. Yes. But so. So where would you like to go now? So I think we've kind of done Kindred or not Kindred. I think we've kind of done Greycan. Yep. As long as we're on the subject of Greycan, do we want to talk about the Randir and the Caneron and the North? Yes, I do. Because like, the thing is, like, the reason I always feel guilty for not liking Graken as a character is because like he has been so horrifically mistreated yeah yeah. his treatment in Seeker's Mask is appalling and you know Jane one of the reasons I'm so compelled by Jane as a main character is because she's so profoundly flawed (laughs) and she's so profoundly flawed in ways that like are consistent yeah and aren't just consistent within her but are consistent within the society it's so tempting whenever you construct a flawed society and the Kenserath is beautifully flawed, like in the sense of they read as very realistic <laughs> because they're horrible. Yes. Oh, yes. But whenever you're constructing a deeply flawed society and you have a main character that's supposed to be very sympathetic, it's tempting to make them like the only sane person in the room. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, they're, they're the person who, like, looks at their society and says, like, in fact, this is bullshit. And Jame and Tori are that to a certain extent, although it's very narratively justified based on their upbringing and based on the people who've been important to them throughout their life. But they both really show the, like, imprint mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the Kenserath's foibles. Yeah. Like, in Tori, it's his attempts to control Jame out of this like paternalistic teachings <laughs> about how she's dangerous not just because she's powerful but she's also dangerous because she's a woman yeah and like when he actually sits down and thinks about it he doesn't believe that yeah. that's not what he thinks and when he sits down and pushes himself on it he's like i think i'm just scared of shanir <laughs> i think i'm just really fucked up on shanir actually I, like you know his um, the scene of him in the fucking women's world. Oh my god! In Seeker's mask is, mm, first of all, absolutely one of my top five favorite Taurusen moments. Probably top three favorite Taurusen moments in the entire series. Second of all, fucking sexiest thing he ever does. <laughs> mm, really love it. I'm hugely into it. <laughs> anyway. I can't wait. I cannot wait. God, you're never going to know peace. <laughs> uh, every time I reread the books, I inevitably end up on Tumblr being like, hey guys, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but like, I would fuck Taurus and Backlord based exclusively on this one scene. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry that this is who I am as a person. You're not wrong. Um, you are not I'm wrong. Right. You are not I'm wrong. Right. You're absolutely right. A hundred percent. A I thousand percent. Absolutely. I cannot wait to talk about this. But the point is, Torison shows the marks of that cultural demand. Yeah. Like that cultural need to suppress their their like female population. Yeah. And even though he doesn't agree with it personally, it's still there. Yeah. And like in James. You can see the imprints of, like, you are highborn. That means you are better and more valuable and, like, people should do what you say and all of these things. And even though she aggressively, outspokenly doesn't agree with that, Mm -hmm. her treatment of Greykin in Seeker's Mask and her treatment of Kendry and, quite frankly, her treatment of everyone in that book, that is, like, the height of Jaime really struggling with being highborn. Yes. More so, I would say, even than Gates of Tagmath. Which is impressive, given that all of Gates of Tagmath is literally Jane being like, update, being highborn requires so many decisions all the time, and I have such bad decision paralysis that I'm not going to do anything. Oh shit, people are dying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Jane, Jane during the Gates of Tagmath is basically, what do I do? What do I do? What do we do? What do we do? Yeah, but so Jane in Seeker's Mask is so, like, about that conflict that she has between what's what her society has taught her is her god-given right as a highborn yeah versus her own actual legitimate thoughts on how you should treat other people yeah and like part of the reason i'm so compelled by her and also by torison in all his flawed jackassery through this entire series is that they're they're true to that conflict yeah They're true to that idea that, like, you know, you might be someone who was raised very out, like, 
by a very outspoken liberal family to like be very accepting of various sexualities and all that and every once in a while your brain's still gonna kick out a pretty horrendously homophobic thought yep because we live in a like in a pretty like homophobic society or like yeah plenty of perfectly nice people i know will occasionally like say something and then they'll stop and they'll go wow i had no idea that i had that kind of like capacity for bullshit i am so sorry yeah and, like, Jame and Tori really both have that. And the reason that I want to talk about the Randir and the Caneron and the North as kind of, like, a unit regarding that yeah. is that they're so... They're all... All three of them are so representative of a different kind of toxicity yeah. in the Kenserath. And specifically, like, the Randir compared to those two other houses. I really loved the way that you you laid out the breakdown between the, the Randir and the Caneron. I really yeah, love it. Yeah, because the thing is, like, especially for the first three books, maybe even the first four, Randorok doesn't show up until pretty late in the game in the fourth book. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of the precipitating incident for, like, update. The Caneron are actually not the biggest big bads. Yeah. At play. Yeah. The bigger big bad at play is definitely the Randir. Yep. But for the first three books, the Caneron are just like so outspokenly horrible. (laughs) (laughs) They're the worst. They're insufferable. Every time the Caneron show up on a page, I'm like, God, I hate every highborn in your house. (laughs) I I even, I've come around on Lyra. Yep. I've come around on Gorble. Yep. I like, I, I like Gorble quite a lot by this point actually yep. and then the earth and, wife and katilla but both of them i was like i hate you and when i realized that there was a connection between them and the earth wife i felt so betrayed because no yeah, the exactly. caneron are horrible and like you know th- the caneron are really presented as like this in- indiscriminate terribleness yes Lord Kaldane isn't good at executing his plans. He's not a competent villain, but he's too powerful to be laughed off as a buffoon. Yeah. And so, like, they're, they just are this, like, scattershot malice. Yeah. They're the equivalent of bringing grape shot to, like, a gunfight. Yeah. You're going to kill your enemy. You're also going to kill everyone else in a 40-foot radius. In a really horrible way. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Basically, the Kendar in the Kainoran house oh, are there. basically all of when I was a preschool teacher and there would be like a child that I just wanted to pick up and like run away with because don't let this child go to their house. But I don't, I can't tell you that's the Kendar in the Kainoran yeah. house. The, the scene of oh, my the festival God. in Seeker's Mask uh, it is really effectively done because it is very humorous at first. Yeah. And then you sit there and you think about it and you're like, oh my God, you guys live like this. Yeah. Hey, if this was like a one day a year, like we're going to have the Feast of Fools and the Lords are going to get wasted and like the Kendar are going to kind of enjoy this contact high. Yeah. All right. Like we could talk about like it still kind of wouldn't be okay, but like it would be a little bit more understandable as something that the Kendar are like, yeah, we just kind of like work around it, you know? Yep. Not that's not the implication. No, it's constant and i'm just like y'all live like this and on that point it's at that point where jame is is pushed right up into the face of just how terrible she can be thanks to briar who just says that didn't help and that that power is really incredible and i love looking at it through the perspective of indiscriminate malice 
Because you're absolutely right. Yeah. In the same way that Kanoran just is brutal to his people through his thoughtlessness and his cruelty and his stupidity, is that's completely different from the Randir, who are yeah, like who a, are surgical. They are. They are surgical. <sighs> if if Kanoran is bringing like grape shot to a gunfight, um, I'm just now realizing that may be more coherent to me than to your average listener. I get it. Yeah. So grape shot is a type of cannon ammunition where it's like a bunch of small balls, usually like um bigger than musket balls, but not by a lot. And then you load like thirty of them in a canister into your cannon, and then you like obliterate the enemy. Yeah. And it's not helpful against fortifications or ships generally. But if you're just like shooting across a battlefield, shooting with grape shot or shra- shrapnel at a t- at the time when cannons were in common use and before we had machine guns and all of this became a completely academic argument. Uh, using grape shot against your enemies was considered effective but unnecessarily like cruel yeah basically specifically if you were fighting a bunch of musketeers and you had grape shot that was considered if you showed up with cannonballs you you were just better armed if you showed up with grape shot you were being an asshole (laughs) but to continue that metaphor like the reindeer are showing up they they didn't show up to the fight with weapons they poisoned your food the night before yeah yeah they are absolutely medical in their precision yeah of destroying their enemies and it's this efficiency of evil like there's this there's almost a grace to it where the randir ronath let's call a spade a spade it's ronath it's ronath who's doing this yep yep prior to jame it trickles down her precisions trickles down but prior to jame throwing up throwing a wrench into her works ronath was running this like clockwork yeah like this swiss clock of evil yeah and the dis- the the dissonance between Kaneron, where Jame is like, hey, if you can, like, muscle through your first conversation with him, you will probably be okay. Yep, yep. You know what? I poisoned him on our first conversation, so now I just need to yell at him a little <laughs> bit, and then he'll spook and start hiccuping, and I can run <laughs> off while he screams. Like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Whereas, like, the Randier, Jame is like, oh, I see. Okay, you're the kind of people who will threaten someone with like the worst death imaginable if they don't slip a poisonous snake into my bed. Yeah. Cool. And and the cool. And, and the way that they'll threaten them is that they will threaten their entire family. Yeah. Like it is surgical. It is remarkable and when you when you made the the distinction between planned efficiency of evil and indiscriminate malice, suddenly this constellation just suddenly came out and I I cannot wait to talk about the rest of these books. Yeah, it's it's really well done. And the other comparison I wanted to make with the Randir, because I am fucking, I'm obsessed with the Randir in a way I'm really not with the Kaneron. Because, like, the thing is, the Kaneron are not that interesting to me as villains. Mm-hmm. The kind of villains that are interesting to me as a rule are the villains who are good at it. Yeah. Kaneron ain't actually that good at it. Nope. Like, he's not innately gifted at being a villain. He's just really, really cruel. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it can kind of fill in the gaps. The Randir are gifted at villainy, mm-hmm. but it's only, like, five people at the top of the food <laughs> chain, and everyone else is just, like, a casualty of war, yeah. and it's 
heart-wrenching. And, like, the scene I always think of when I'm talking about the reindeer being evil, because, like, it, I think it's so important to keep it in mind, because it's it's what the reindeer are about. Yeah. As, like, as a house, the thing that the reindeer are about is that, like, yes, they are currently kind of the native evil of the Kenserath. Like, with, with the Permal Darkling situation being, like, the external threat, the reindeer are kind of the native evil at the moment. But the scene of the burning of the nameless cadets. Oh my god. <gasps> where the reindeer just like they can't do anything. They cannot stop yes. Roneth. Yes. They can't stop her from trying to kill Jamin Randorak. Their their hands are tied in the most literal way because of Honor's paradox. Yeah. They can't stand against her doing something dishonorable, but also they can't bring themselves to obey her order in that moment. And so instead they choose to do nothing. And it's this moment of like deafening courage and honor as yeah. they stand around the pyres of their children whose oh. names have been stolen oh. and they just don't move and yeah. it's the only resistance they have left to them is to stand there and not move yeah and that's the scene i always think of with the reindeer because it's so so powerful and it's so impactful and that's kind of why i wanted to talk about them and the north because like the north similarly have so frequently been in the position of looking at their lord or their lady and being like i can't do this yeah to obey this order would be the ultimate betrayal of my honor, but I can't not obey this order because that's what the North are all fucking about. Yep. That's their whole thing. And yeah, I just, I always want to bring that scene up when I'm talking about the Randier in the context of like, the Randier are the worst. Yeah. Because like, what I really mean by that is like, Ronef and her inner circle should all just be thrown in a fire and call it a day. Yep. Like, yep. just chuck them into the fire timber hole. Like, lock the door, come back in a week, and just, like, quietly sweep away the ashes. Yep. And congratulations, you've vastly improved the health of the Kenserath <laughs> as a whole. Yes. You just go in there, and you cut out the cancer, and you get on with your fucking life. Yep. But the rest of the house, like, still retains this core yeah. of honor. And, like, I, I always want to be clear about that when I'm talking about the Randir, especially because I'm about to get mean about them again. Because the thing with the Randir and the North, feel free to interrupt me at any no, time. No, this is great. The thing about the Randir and the North that I always think about is that it's not that the Randir and the North are innately that different. Like, the Randir and the North even mesh, they mesh well mm -hmm. in a way that I mean their, like, respective world of hat, yep. world of hats shit tends to produce, like, actual functional people. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, Tyrandus is half Randir and half North. Yep. And he is the best of both houses, and unfortunately that got him damned for eternity <laughs> and ultimately killed, because there is no such thing as being fortunate in the Kenserath. <laughs> but the difference between the Randir and the North is that the North are sort of obliged to be more forthright because their fallout is so much more catastrophically spectacular. Yes, yes. And it's not that the it's not that the Randir don't have the capacity to do a lot of damage. See previous re Ronith. Mm -hmm. But it's that when the Randir go off the deep end, it's like, okay, so Randir is collapsing from within mm -hmm. and they have done a bunch of horrible shit and they've done a bunch of terrible things and Ronith made some contracts she shouldn't have made and now there's some like half changers kicking around the Kenserath. <laughs> all right, it's all getting pretty bad out there. <laughs> but but all of that in mind, it's relatively contained. Yes. Yes. It's kind of like an abscess. Yeah. 
Like, you have a really dire infection, but only in, like, a square inch of your body. Yep. So we can contain it, and you might be, it's gonna be dicey, but you'll be okay. You could wipe out the current ruling family, put Randorok back, yep. and probably get on with your life Absolutely. okay. Absolutely. The North, on the other hand, when someone in the North goes off the fucking deep end, they're taking everybody, everybody down Everybody with, with them. Everybody's going down. <laughs> like, hey, the North lose their minds and they kill two thirds of the cancer. Yep. The North lose their minds and they lo- lead the worst military debacle of the past century. Like when the reindeer go bonkers, mm-hmm. they wander around and knock on a bunch of doors and kill the people who answer. Exactly. Answer them. Yep. Not good, but pretty contained. It is. It is at least contained. So yeah, you're absolutely right. When the reindeer go crazy, they're it's bad. Yeah. But it's bad for, like, 40 people. Yep. When the North go crazy, it's gonna get fucking dire. Yeah. It's gonna get fucking serious, which is, I think, a big part of the reason that, you know, on the one hand, you don't want someone unstable as your High Lord. That's a fair and legitimate statement. Yep. We're all very familiar with that yeah, feeling. Yeah, yeah. But more than that, every time Torison shows a little bit of instability, everyone around him is like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my, oh, God. What's, what's he gonna do? What's going to happen? Oh, okay. He's fine. He just needed a nap. Just needed a nap. Yeah. Everything's good. We put him down for 30 minutes and he's okay. And he has that attitude as well. Yeah. Anytime like, he, he and James feels... are both just waiting for that snap. They are. And, and I mean, I think that Torison is, he, he kind of got that ringside view of the spectacular fallout growing up in Gant's house in the haunted land. Yeah, Jesus. And so as a result, as a result, anything that is even remotely, slightly not completely unsettled ground, he panics and he stays yeah. awake for weeks and and then it it just gets worse. But I have a question for you. Go for it. Do you mind if I ask this question? And that is, with with the spectacular fallout, I, I wrote down a couple of different people who all seem to kind of fit into that realm of the spectacular fallout. And that is, like, Gorbel and the tree that's growing in his foot. Yeah. And Timmond starts off as an asshole, but then he begins to kind of have this fallout according to the artist, but he kind of begins to rally a little bit as a potential not bad guy. I can't believe I've forgotten her name. I can't believe I've forgotten her name. What's the name of the girl? Narth? I can't- What? Which girl? The girl who dies. The girl who hangs herself. Yeah, Narth. Isn't it? Narth. Is that- I think- I don't think that's right. I'm gonna look it up. Oh, shoot. Because I can look it up in the glossary of names. It has an I in it. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Narsa. 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 Yes. That's it. Because you said Narth and I was like, I am pretty sure that's Mark's ex-lord. Yes, it is. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. But so but- we have we have Gresham, we have Gorbel, we have Timon, and we have the Bashtir assassins. And so all of those seem to be encompassed in that spectacular fallout a lot of that is fallout from ganth yeah from ganth losing his mind well and like gresham's not but gresham's directly gresham's not gresham gresham was uh worse first (laughs) gresham is directly related to ganth's father who yeah and i can't remember what his name is starts with a g geraint 
Your ain't. Oh my god. Yes. Oh. I d- I'm sure that's not how you say that, but I refuse to change it. I know. It sounds so ridiculous. It is. It is. He doesn't deserve a better name. <laughs> but, I mean, Gresham is spectacular fallout from Geraint. Ganth is spectacular fallout from Gresham. In a lot of very real ways, Ganth's madness is direct fallout from Geraint's madness yeah. because he falls in love with the Dreamweaver at Gresham's quote-unquote pyre. Yeah, yeah. With that whole debacle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what followed off of that could be traced back to that moment. Yeah. Like, that's sort of a critical turning point of like, okay, this is how Ganth threw the short straw. It wasn't just because he was the heir to the North. It was also because of this moment. Yes, exactly. And all of all of these moments that led up to that, which yeah. again harkens back to that Graken and that that cavernous fear of being helpless again. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, but having that, I mean, looking at that. Graken and Ganth. Let's, yeah. Remind me to talk about that during Rider Rathorn. Yeah. Oh yeah, we will. Don't worry. But what I think is so interesting is that all of that rat's nest seems like it's so conscious almost, you know, but it's yeah. actually this inchoate explosion of woe. And as and in comparison with the randier concealed evil that is almost like, you know, figuring out how to attach mirrors to the moon so that you can use lasers and pick off specific people. It's amazing. Yeah, kind of. But yeah, so like, I just, I think it's fascinating that it's, the Randir versus the North are very much an issue of scale yeah. when they go bad. Yeah. But like, I do I do think it's just an interesting vehicle with which to talk about the ways that those two houses tend to go bad because like, the North always do lose their minds in huge dramatic flashy yeah. moments of, you know, killing everyone in a 40 yard radius or whatever. Like, yeah. oh cool, one of the North went crazy. What was the casualty count? <laughs> Was it lower than 100? Good day. Good day. Well, here's some, here's something that I think is interesting that brings together all of this. And that is that Kindry is at the nexus of the North and the Randir because he is so yeah, heavily he's... abused by the pointed evil that is the Randir. And it seems very tailored and specific for Kindry, especially later on. I mean, at first in Seeker's Mask and in... in uh, honor, bound in honor. It's just Kindry is just kind of like collateral damage. But later on, it seems almost pointed and personal. So he's he's kind of oh, at the nexus of Kainaron, Randir, and North. What did you just realize? A huge part of the reason that Ronith hates Kindry is because Kindry is what she wanted from her contract with Kiral. Yes. Because Kiral, okay, I'm do a bit of math, uh, do a bit of generational math real quick. Kiral is Tyrandus's half brother yep. on the other side from Tyrandus being Jame Thiel and Jaredin's half brother. Yes. That means that Jame Thiel and Jaredin don't share any blood with Kiral, but they're, they still grew up as half brothers. Yes. And that means that in it, like, insofar as such a concept exists in the Kenserath Highborn, which are a knotted mess of breeding lines, that means that Kindry and the the Randier Lord are cousins. Yes! I'd never quite done that math out before because I knew they were related, but I, I hadn't done the math out all the way that they're first degree cousins. Mm-hmm. Because the other thing is that Kiral is half Kendar, so he's not even a legitimate highborn. 
Yep. And therefore wouldn't be classed as a full brother to any of the others, regardless of their relation. And so it doesn't matter. So that's the one point where Ronwith's spectacular plan went to Ronith. Ronith. Because she thought that she was getting Kindred. Exactly. That's fucking brilliant. I love, I love, this is... I, I love talking about these books. Oh, God. So I love I. just sitting around and shooting the shit about, like, all the things that are connected through <laughs> oh the whole God, series. Oh, my God, me too. Me too, I, me too. It makes me so happy. Oh, my God, me too. Anyway, the one other thing I wanted to talk about, because this would be an ideal moment to segue into talking about Kindred, yep. but I want to talk about Kindred last so that we can wax poetic about Kindred yep. for as long as we want to. So the next thing I want to talk about is how much I love the concept of Titastagon as a narrative implement. Yeah. Because a lot of people I've I've talked to who've read the Kenserath but didn't finish the series, usually they're like, I read the first two books and I could, I didn't like how the tone changed, which that's totally valid. Live your best life. Like, I don't, I care deeply about these books, but I don't care enough to like hound people for having quote unquote wrong opinions. <laughs> but so the, the thing that I think is difficult to explain to someone right off the bat is that Titastagon is very seriously like training wheels for the rest of the series. Yes. Like for Jame personally, because it's like, okay, here's like a small scale. You have a highborn of the Kenserath who's twisted honor into some very pretty origami shapes <sighs> in order to make it do exactly what he expects it to do, yep. while also privately disregarding it completely. And he is going to try and use the power not only of his position, but the power of the three-faced god to absolutely destroy you, mm -hmm. which the more we get into the series, the more it becomes clear that the three-faced, the temples of the three-faced god are in a pretty literal way connected to the destruction of each world. Yes. Like there's something, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Yeah. And has been for 30,000 years. <laughs> But so Titastagon works beautifully as like the the training level, mm -hmm. like the practice level. Yep. It's the fight in the video game where if you're not shooting the enemy, they're not shooting you. And the helpful little like focus button pops up and is like, press A to shoot or like, <laughs> you know, left trigger to melee. I definitely have those backwards. This is why I am bad at video games. Whatever. And like, that's Titastagon. Uh -huh. it's, it's only one city. Yep. There's a limit to how much damage Jane can do. Yep. It could be, it's a lot of damage that she does, but it could be worse. Yep. And it's, it's a great foreshadowing of the rest of the series of like, you know, Jane feeling this profound connection to Bane, who is a monster, yeah. which really foreshadows her connection to a lot of monstrous characters. Yeah. Like whether they're, whether they're monstrous but fundamentally not malignant. Uh -huh. Like, I would classify Brenwyr in that yes. group. Yes, Because it's not her fault. She's not looking to hurt people, but she cannot control the maledict Shanir ability yeah. at all. Yeah. So, like, anyone short of basically Jame, Tori, and her brother is fair, fair game. game. Incidentally, James spends, like, multiple books harping on the curse that Brenwyr puts on her. But we know from the jump that Torison is completely immune. Yes. And I think there's a very good chance that Jame is as well. Yes. And just 
if god if you two could speak to each other civilly for like an hour yeah. and a half god yeah be honest about your emotions <laughs> and jame could be like i really worry about this curse that brenweir put on me way back in like the women's world where she said that i would you know be ruthless and rootless for the rest of my life and never have a home and torison could be like oh yeah no she tried to curse me into dust mm-hmm. And, like, all that happened was my clothes kind of fell apart. Yeah. So, like, you're probably fine. You're probably good. You know, snakes of the same venom and all that. They would have to talk to each other. God. Um, how did I get onto this? Oh, monsters. From monsters like Brenwyr or, like, Shade, who is a genuinely good person, but is the closest thing to a natural-born changer that the Kentseer have ever seen. Yeah. In a very similar way that Jaime is the closest thing to a natural-born Darkling they've ever seen. Yes! They're, they're they're mutually unfallen in their strangeness. Yeah. And they're in the monstrous but not malicious. Like, they are they are what they are, and what they are is terrifying, yep. but it's not their fault, and they don't use it for evil. Yeah. All the way up to, like, mm, who's a good example? The Randir Tempter. Oh my god, yes! Because she's someone who, similarly, her Shanir abilities, that's a bad that's a bad hand she got dealt yep. there. Like, that's just not a great one, actually. But but she also chose she, it. She chose to be that way. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, James' connection with Bane foreshadows so beautifully her, her sense of kinship with all of these people. Mm-hmm. And, like, her failing Dally and Dally's death, because she really views it as failing yep, him yep, personally. Yeah. And, like, her near miss with losing Mark to the suicide ritual. Oh, yeah. Both of those are such good ghosts of the future, basically, where she worries so much about losing people. And again, like I said, the two lines that have always been weirdly connected in my head um, with Jaime and Bane are her telling Bane that Dally was found half-flayed in his favorite pattern, and her telling Vant... Your coat, your shirt, your skin. Yes. Yes. Because, like, even, like, even so many books later, she's still very literally working off of what Titastagon taught her. Yes. Even when it's how to be a monster. Exactly. Because in James' book, how to be a monster is flay someone alive. Yeah. But what's so powerful is that in, in By Demons Possessed, when she does go back to Titastagon, and she does stand... Great book, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. And she does stand in that role of being a lorden, of being a leader, of being that... She's so much better at oh, it. Oh, she's so good at it. And you can see all of the developments and everything that she learned from every single person so that when she gets back to Tagmouth and she's faced with Terabend who's tied to a chair and ever so gleeful about I'm back. She has the chops to deal with it. I love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. But yeah, anyway, Titastagon is really training wheels and like it's really a, a microcosm of the Kenserath as a whole yeah. series. And like if anyone ever asks you, why does the tone change so much? You can just be like, it's because this is the training level. Yeah. Not just for the reader, but also for Jane. Yep. It's like, there's only so much you can break here. You're not likely to die because there are no Kenserat. Like, there are no other Kenseer yep. here except for Ishtir, who you can outpower. Yep. And Mark, who would never. Yeah. And Bane, who would never. Yep. 
Which means that, like, she's safe. Yeah. she Because she's the real deal, the real nemesis, Titastagon can throw whatever the fuck it wants at her. Yep. And the only person who would be able to kill her there, barring someone she brought with her, would be Dallas Saar. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I guess Mandalus is half-blooded, so he might be able to take a swing, but I doubt he'd be able to pull it off. But- he would never try. He would never try. He would never try. He's too fucked up. Yep. But so, so that's really what I had to say about Titastagon. Do you have anything else you want to say about Titastagon? Uh, no. Okay. Um, then do you want to talk about Kindry? All right, Kindry. So, first of all, I'm going to be so mean to Kindry in the next book. Yeah, you are. You're going to be so mean. I, yeah. I will, I will not. I just, I, the problem is that I am too much like Jame with that kind of situation. Yeah. Get up and walk. <sighs> open the door. Stop dishonoring your ancestors and open the damn door. Yeah. Are you a norther? Aren't you? Open the door. <laughs> yeah. God. I, so there's this interesting phenomenon that people know about if they're someone who has a bunch of trauma that they're actually aware of rather than just sublimating it into uh, screwing up the next generation. <laughs> and it's that birds of a similar traumatized feather tend to flock together yep. in the sense of if you are someone with a lot of issues, most of your friends lo and loved ones probably also have a lot of issues. Yep. As such, I can confirm <laughs> from the way I handle people around me having a breakdown that I am... Far too much like James to be nice to Kindry in the next book. Because I have out loud told someone, well, if your back hurts that much and you're not going to go to a doctor, stand up and walk across the room. And they were like, I think I'm going to pass out if I do that. And I was like, okay, if you pass out, I'm calling an ambulance. I can attest to that. I can attest <laughs> like, to that. Like, okay. Okay. If you think you're going to have a complete breakdown, like either have the breakdown or get on with your life. Yep. Like, cool. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily right or wrong. There's like, that is a value neutral judgment. It has thus far served me personally and the people I care about very well. Yes. But I'm too much like James to be nice to Kendry in the next book. So I want to be really nice to him in this conversation and talk about how great he is and how good a job he does and how much he grows from like kind of the like, cringing, wilting Violet in Seeker's Mask to, like, really a force to be reckoned with by the Sea of Time. Well, and I think, yes. And the Gates of Tagma. Yes. Like, he's, he's such a, he's such a strong character, especially because, like, I, I talk a lot about Kindry when I talk about him as he's the invisible secondary protagonist. Yeah. He doesn't share the deuteragonist role with Jaime and Tori. Like, they are indubitably the main characters. But, like, you know, gun to my head, a second main, like, a second most main character <laughs> would be Kindry. <laughs> Why would you say that? Uh, people will just ask you. <laughs> There's four bazillion characters in this. Yeah, it's true. It's One true. time someone asked me if I had a chart. Yeah, it's tr that's true. I don't have a chart. Okay, that's true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm wasting time. I'm wasting precious time. I don't have a chart and there's tons of characters in this and also tons of them get more screen time than Kindry does. That's true. Although you and I were- By screen time, Mark or Briar would be a better candidate depending on what part of the book series you're reading. Although I remember the other day when we were taking notes, we were both surprised at how- how present Kindry was in Dark of the Moon and how, this is my thing. how he's like really around. Yeah, this is my thing because Mark and Briar both probably get by word count more, more time on the page than he does. Mm -hmm. But like, I always think of him as appearing in Seeker's Mask and then like showing up kind of intermittently thereafter. Mm -hmm. He's pretty consistently there. It's just that like, 
until his appearances in To Ride a Rathorn onward, where he is a more intermittent, like, character. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't live at Tentier. Yeah. And uh, after Jaime kind of just, like, hands him to the Jaren with this attitude of, like, you want a healer? <laughs> and the Jaren are like, we're a bunch of scholars, but sure. Sure. Kid has a good memory and seems to get along pretty good with our lord and who needs a friend and, so hell yeah and he's the only person that index doesn't throw things at so yes we will yes. keep him yes but prior to that he's so self-effacing and it's so he's so distinct into rider rathorn where he's prepared to shut jame down yeah He's prepared to be like, no, no, you're going to do what I say. Yeah. And if you don't do what I say, you're going to collapse. And if you do collapse, you're going to reopen your wound and you're going to end up right back in this bed, but for longer. So yeah. how about you obey me? And it's at that point when he also takes Jame to task for her treatment of Grey Kim. Yeah. And like, he grows so much, but he's so, so self-effacing in the first two books he's in. I have a theory. Go for it. This is really beautifully done because not going to lie, when I read these books, I was massively fucked up. Yeah. And the thing that I liked so much, because I really, really like Kindry. I like the portrayal of Kindry in Seeker's Mask. But if it were just Kindry alone, I would go out of my mind. But Kindry is such a perfect counterpoint to Jane. He's a great foil to her. Because Kindry is externally what Jane is internally. And I think that that's incredibly powerful because in the soul image, they have this commonality and they speak the same language. And it's at that point where Kindry realizes, oh, she acts this way because she's terrified. She's as terrified as I am. I had no idea. And it's at that point where Kindry begins to actually grow. Yeah. And like specifically he realizes that the reason Jame is so harsh with him is because she is terrified of being what he is. Exactly. And that's unpleasant for everyone. Yeah, it is. And it's also really accurate for that process of recovery and that recognition of, oh, I see, no matter what I do, I would never be accepted in this. And that stage of really feeling like you're locked out from the most intimate part of yourself and coming to terms with that in a way that is fundamentally world-changing. And I really do love the way that Kindry is portrayed because he's he is not portrayed apart from Jane. And I think that's incredibly powerful and really reflects how hard Jane is working to not show how terrified she is all the time. Yeah, and I mean, like... I will be a good foil to you in Seeker's Mask. Yeah, and I think the other thing... I I think I will probably be nicer to Kendry now than I would have been eight years ago when I read these books for the first time. Uh, Oh, longer than that. Nine years ago. (laughs) Ten years ago. I can count. Um... (laughs) Uh, God, do I know how old I am? Pop quiz of the day. (laughs) But so one of the things that I'm, I don't know, I've always kind of like, Kendry is handling his recovery in a much healthier way than Jay Murtori. Insofar as these books go, I would say that Kendry is probably the platonic ideal of trauma recovery in the Kenserath. Yeah. Because he... Doesn't handle it like Tori, where he's just in denial. He doesn't handle it like Jame, where he tries to fight or kill or run away from everything that even reminds him of his trauma. Yep. 
Yep. Jame is a pretty hard fight or flight response to trauma. Yep. Tori's response is to ignore it until it goes away. Yep. And Kendry's the one who's like, I'm a healer. I have to be able to use my soul image. And that means that I need to be able to get into it. Yeah. I need to be able to deal with it. I need to be able to live with the fact that the external part of my soul image is the priest's college. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to open this door. I need to be able to walk into other people's soulscapes. And because it's so pushed because like for all of the trouble and grief and suffering it has caused him he thinks of himself as a healer first last most of all yep, yep. more than being a north more than being a bastard more than anything in the world kindry thinks of himself as a healer yep. and that means that he really just had to fucking handle his shit yeah because of the way healing works in the kensarath he just had to handle his shit and like compared to jame and tori that's such an ideal a, a ludicrous fantasy of emotional competence, to be honest. Well, and there's one particular aspect that is incredibly powerful in that and that allows Kindry to make that realization. And that is the realization that it's not that he can't get into his soul image because he's just not able to because he's flawed. He can't get into it because he's been locked out. Yeah, it's on purpose. It's on it's purpose. So, it's not to put too fine a point on it. He's not responsible for it. Exactly. It's something that was done to him. Exactly. And that, I think, is something that is incredibly powerful because it raises that question of how could a person do that? Thinking about this doesn't really leave me with anything other than someone could actually do this. And so yeah. it's, it, it is not recursive in the way that James' self-deprecation is recursive or the way that Torison's self-deprecation is recursive. It, it, he, that yeah. transition from the self-blaming for having in experiencing trauma to the point where I am not responsible for this trauma that occurred, but I have to deal with the consequences is an incredibly powerful transition. Yeah, and also like, um, how do I want to put this? Kindry in handling his trauma is someone who his entire existence as a healer depends on his ability to look at a situation and see the damage. Mm -hmm. And that means that, like, he's so much more equipped to be compassionate with himself once he's able to articulate it to the extent of, like, I've been locked out, this is something that was done to me. Mm -hmm. He's so much more able, like, he has an understanding of how to, you know, spend hours and hours unpicking like black threads from you know scarred faces and he understands how to look at the lock on a door and say i don't think i want that to be my home in your soul and he like those are things he understands how to do because he understands how to look at the damage done to someone's innermost self and that means that when he's put on the spot he's able to be like okay this tattered fabric ghost of my mother haunting my soul image is Sure, a problem I don't really want to handle, but like, I'm going to take some deep breaths and I'm going to deal with it. Like, we're going to like, hey, I need some help. Yeah. I need a, not an adult, but I need someone who is more equipped for destruction than I am. And like, he's so much more, he has the skill set. Yes. Jamin Tori, no one ever really taught them the skill set of like, hey, hot take, maybe just don't do this to yourself. Yeah. Maybe just take a deep breath and lean back and like recognize that you should you could not do this to yourself. Yeah. Part of what's interesting in that is is as you're talking, I'm remembering 
the um to ride a rathorn when jame comes to the realization about her uncle and her father and their relationship at tentier and the dreams that she has that are woven together with timon and with torison and all of this for her to realize that level of objectivity in is the first time that she has She's on the same footing as Taurus, as Kindry, with yeah. the recognition that she is not responsible for what happened to her in the same way that Kindry is not responsible for what happened to him. Yeah. And Kindry needs her destructive pragmatism or her pragmatic destructiveness in order to help him be able to see that some things need to be broken. But just because some things yeah. need to be broken doesn't mean that you have to be broken. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is, like, Kindry is hindered by his by his nature in a similar way that Torison is, because, like... Oh, interesting. Well, here's my thing, because the thing with Torison is that when he's in distress, when he's struggling to cope, mm -hmm. he gets sick, and then he can't get better because he's creation. Yes. And, like, yeah. the nature of illness is that something is being created within your body that you are not equipped for. Yes. And it's the same reason that his, like, loss of control causes the bakery to explode yeah. because yeast responds to, like, that creative <laughs> energy by blowing up. Yeah. And it's the same reason that, like, the food in Gothrigor, they can't keep food on the tables because it's, like, sprouting. Yeah. And they're like, well, okay, this would be great if we were trying to grow a potato crop, but we need to fucking eat something. Yeah. In a similar way, I think that Kindry is hindered somewhat by his ability, by his nature, because on the one hand, destroying the Thierry ghost in his soulscape, that's probably the right call. Yep. That's, that's like active contamination of a pretty serious variety. It's, it's, it's time to maybe remove that from the situation. But he's, he's preservation. It's so difficult for him to conceptualize destroying a part of a soulscape. Well- and that also raises a really interesting that raises a really interesting question because for Torison, part of the reason why he isn't able to make the connection between the uh the fungus that's consuming all of the food and his illness is because of his recursive condemnation of himself because of the trauma that he's experienced. Yeah. It also helps that he that his asshole of a father bloodbound him. I mean, there is that. Yeah. You know, but for- Fuck you, Ganth. For Torison, he is responsible for it all. It's his fault. For Kindry in Seeker's Mask, it's his fault because he's, because he's too weak. And while Jane comes to the recognition in her experience in Tentier with the hair loom coat and everything that's associated with that, and also Kindry with his recognition that he's been locked out of his soul image, is the first time that they acknowledge that they are not responsible. Torison hasn't gotten yeah. to that point yet. And so yeah, I think that I think that the scene at the end of Gates of Tagmouth is probably the closest he's ever come to conceptualizing that he is not directly yes. responsible for everything Ganth has ever done. Yes, to him. exactly. Which like that's a big part of the reason that I still have that I still love him very, very much, even though I'm gonna basically denounce him as a dumbass and an asshole for the next many books. seven books. And I think that that is a really 
fantastic portrayal of recovery because every single person has a really different trajectory. And what I really like about it is that, you know, Kendry and Jame have their own particular rhythm with regards to handling each other with regards to their dumbassery. I mean, they're just sometimes when they when they harp on each other about stop being a dumbass. But each of them are growing in their recovery in their own way. And Jame has so much compassion for her brother, even when he's being horrible to her. An asshole. An asshole. And she still acknowledges, what you did was wrong, and I understand why. And I really love the way that Ms. Hodgel includes and weaves in all of their insights. It's spectacular reflection. It's very compelling. It really, really is. It's it's really, really compelling. And yeah, I, I... Like I said, I kind of think of Kendry as like, he's certainly handling the situation better than Jamin Tori, largely because he has no choice. But I, I just, I so frequently think of Kendry as, as sort of this platonic ideal of what recovery can look like mm-hmm. in the Kenserath, like this ideal of learning to kind of work around it and still be Kensier and still be highborn and not self-destruct with self-loathing because you're part of the same group that hurt you, yeah. you know? Which, like, at Ganth and Torison, yeah. please take lessons. Yes. I have a thought, and it's related to Kindry and Jane in particular, but Torison is also in there. And that is Jane's interaction with the Earthwife and with Death's Head seems to be intimately involved in and related to not only her growth and recovery, but also it provides an opportunity to give Kindry some cover. And I'm not entirely sure why I say that, but those seem to be intimately connected. Because I remember in the Earth's Wife Lodge, when Torison ended up there and she de-aged him. (laughs) So now he and- Spiked him directly back into the, like, the depths of him failing to recover from Urukar. Yes. And failing to recover from Ganth and just deciding to repress everything (laughs) while he became commander in the Southern Host. Yeah, that- Yep, yep. yep. And so the Earthwife is in the same way as Ash- kind of the objective observer, but she's also this agent of chaos. And I have always in my mind made this connection between the Earthwife and Kindry, where she, like, I've always imagined, and I, I and I want to look for that when I read it now, but I've always imagined that the Earthwife in some kind of unobtrusive way provides some protection for Kindry in the same way that she, that she feels deeply protective of Death's Head. I think that it's interesting because if I was going to align the native gods of Rathilian with any of the three-faced the three faces of the three-faced god, it would have to be preservation. Yeah. Especially the four, because all of them were preserved through a, a a killing. Yes! Like, the Earthwife was buried alive. Strong Magnus Archives vibes. But, like, they were all preserved. Yeah. And I, I think to a, a certain extent, like, preservation is a more a more native force to Rathelion than creation or destruction in the way that the three-faced god delivers it. And that may be why I'm making that connection. It may also be that I'm making that connection because because Death's head is so weak and he is as weak and helpless and self-deprecating as Kindry is in yeah. Seeker's Mask when, oh my god, I can't believe 
I forgot. I blanked on the name of of the widow here. Oh my God, the lady Beltari. Thank you. When Beltari is is holding Death's head as this weakened shell. Oh, of and a boy. she's singing to him. Yes. Oh, that's a yeah. And that's, I love Bell. And that's, oh God, I love Bell. I'm so excited to talk. That's about her. the first time, and really kind of the only time that the Earthwife takes Jane down. She takes her to task, and she calls her out for the for the creature of you know, darkness and wounding who she is. And and I just, that may be why I'm making that connection between the two, but I'm really into it. And I can't wait to read these books again and talk about them with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing is that Kindry, the the greatest healer that the Kenserath has ever produced, the man who almost resurrected a sheepskin, clo- a sheepskin coat, the thing he can't heal is Death's, head atte- Death's Head's attempt. Damn, that's a lot of S's. Death's Head's attempts to starve Jane. Yes! Like, he tries to heal her, and he's like, I, fuck if I know yeah. what's wrong with you. And there's, yeah, and that that may actually be part of why I'm seeing all of those correlations, but I cannot wait to talk about it again, because I'm excited to. I love, I actually, as, as much as you end up dunking on Kindry in Seeker's Mask, I love the scenes with Kindry because it's so compelling. Yeah, and I mean, like, I, I've, my opinion of him in Seeker's Mask has improved steadily as I reread the books because, like, the first time through, I virtually forgot about yeah. him between Dark of the Moon and Seeker's Mask because he is so, despite being so present and in almost, I think, every Taurusan chapter. He is! Or at least pretty goddamn close. Like, he's omnipresent yeah. in Torrison's chapters of Seeker's Mask. He's so self-effacing and he's so... Afraid. Determined to conceal himself yeah. for fear of being seen, mm-hmm. basically. Admittedly, he is sort of a fugitive. Like, he did very much bail on the priest's college without permission. So, understandable. But, like, the first time through, I virtually forgot about him in Dark of the Moon. Yeah. And so my first introduction to him was Seeker's Mask. And I was like, oh boy, you are aggravating. <laughs> I'm not saying you don't have every reason to be this fucked up, but dang. Like, yeah, Jame hit you and I'm, I understand why she did that. <laughs> And, like, having reread the books more than that and, like, paid more attention to how much I love his character in in Dark of the Moon and how profoundly wounded he is between those two. Yeah. I've come around to him much more in Seeker's Mask than I, I originally did. Yeah. But, I yeah, I was uh, rude about him the first time I read that book. I am so excited to dive into Seeker's Mask. This is, to me, yeah. this is when it really, the book This is when alive. shit really, it's like, just, kicks up. Oh, I'm really excited. Really I love great. Seeker's Mask. I mean, I, ke- I keep saying that. That's, that. That sentence has no meaning anymore. Oh, it has lots of meaning, because wherever we are in the books, that happens to be my favorite part. Yeah. All right. I think that's everything we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, in a very reasonable and clean time period. Yes! Too. I am proud of us. I am too. <laughs> We're doing great. We are. Uh, shall I, shall, I'm going to start the outro, if that's okay. Yeah, we don't have anything to read or anything. Just I know. do it. It's really awesome. All right, so uh, y'all, this has been the spoiler episode of the podcast Bound in Pale Leather. I hope to God you knew what we were talking about this time, <laughs> so or too. at least was co- were cognizant of not knowing what we were talking about. <laughs> if not, then this has been a really interesting ex- exploration of how words are great toys. 
Yeah, if you d- if you haven't read the entire series, I have no idea what this episode <laughs> sounded like. But we are probably incoherent. <laughs> we are really glad and grateful to you for joining us today. Uh, you are more than welcome to send us all of your thoughts or any of your thoughts about this spoiler episode, Seeker's Mask, Dark of the Moon, Godstock, or the entire Kenserath Chronicles on Tumblr at the podcast bound in pale leather over email at podcastboundinpaleleather at gmail.com, or on Twitter. You can send us a message on Twitter at podcast Or you can B-I-P-L. tweet at us. Oh, I suppose so. I, yeah. Full disclosure. That's how Twitter works. I don't really know how Twitter works. Yeah, if you email us, you're probably going to hear from Mom. If you hit us up on Twitter or Tumblr, you're going to hear from me. Yep. That's pretty much how it works. That is how it works. So, as always, a great big thank you to Seth Jones for our intro and outro music. And uh, we wanted to cover a little bit of housekeeping here for when we dive into Seeker's Mask. Yes. Dave, would you take it away, please? I would love to. So, the relevant detail about Seeker's Mask is that it does not have nice, neat chapter divisions. (laughs) Instead, it's divided into eight parts Mm -hmm. and then each part is divided into between like five and ten subsections Mm -hmm. and the subsections are each section is from a different person's point of view generally speaking i think there are some where it's like all jame for like several but usually it's multiple points of view kind of like interwoven together which works great in the novel but is going to present some challenges for our podcast Mm -hmm. Because we're just going to have to kind of, like, feel it out based on, like, length of sections. Yep. So what we're currently planning is we'll, t- we'll still tell you what we're going to read next. What we're currently planning to start with is sections one through three, I think, yep. of part one yep. of Dark of the Moon. And then we will see... Of Seeker's Mask. Of Seeker's Mask. There we go. Sorry. <laughs> and we'll see how long that episode is and go from there. Yep. And it's worth noting that, Gabe, you really called it well when you described uh, Godstock as the training wheels. And this is where Godstock and Dark of the Moon, they were primers. Now we're going to learn everything about everyone. Welcome to it. We get to go hang out in the Kenserath some more, learn some more about society. We're going to get to talk about gender. I'm, God, y'all going to be sick of me talking about like, we get compulsory femininity as trauma. Oh my God. And and stay tuned. And it's, it's great because I mean, for when I first read these books and I know that I am not alone in this world, but you know, to have a strong female character who was... I I mean, she, she's everything. She's awesome. And we get to step into the women's world now, y'all. I am beyond excited because it is so fucked up. (laughs) We're going to have so much fun. The women's world is... It's awful. I know a lot of people really, like, I'm I'm fascinated by it as kind of um, my personal health. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um... It's it's going to be a fun chat and you're all just going to have to live with me talking a bunch about gender. It's interesting because it's it's a little counterintuitive because the women's world is like, yeah, in a way it's really like hell. And yet 
These books have such unbelievably powerful male and female characters where gender just becomes this experience of that we can really get our hands on. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking because otherwise I'm not going to stop. All right. I think that's everything. <laughs> I think so. Thank you all. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hope this was a good time. I hope so. This was this was fun for me. I had a blast. I had a blast. <laughs> all right. I'm Catherine. <laughs> I'm Gabe. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>